Well, if you've been here for a while, you've heard me at different times read from portions of Pilgrim's Progress. The reason I do that is because that book, for me, strikes a chord that, that I think John Bunyan, who wrote it while he was in prison in the 1600s, intended to, to do for the church, which is to provoke us to consider the world that is to come and our right response to it. What I want to do for us this morning is I want to open, I want to open this sermon in Revelation 19 with reading from the opening of Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim's Progress, if you're not familiar, is it's an allegory of the Christian life about a man named Christian who is called to leave the city of destruction, the world, and go to the celestial city, glory. And he is met here in this opening scene by a man named Evangelist who has warned him about judgment that is to come and his need to flee. We pick it up here with Christian talking about a book in his hand. He's been reading the Bible and it's messing with him and he doesn't know what to do. Sir, I perceive by the book in my hand that I am condemned to die and after that to come to judgment. And I find that I am not willing to do the first, to die, nor able to do the second, to come into judgment and live. Then said evangelist, why are you not willing to die since this life is attended with so many evils? And the man answered, because I fear that this burden that is upon my back will sink me lower than the grave. This burden on his back is the awareness of his sin. He's been reading the Bible and becoming aware that he's guilty before God, but he doesn't know what to do. And he's afraid that if he dies without dealing with this burden, that he will sink down into the depths of hell. Then said Evangelist, if this be thy condition, why do you stand still? And he answered, because I don't know where to go. Then he gave him a parchment roll, and there was written on it, flee from the wrath to come. And the man read it, therefore, and looking upon Evangelist very carefully said, where should I flee? Then the evangelist, pointing with his finger over a very wide field, said, Do you see yonder wicked gate? The man said, No. Then said the other, Do you see yonder shining light? He said, I think I do. Then said evangelist, Keep that light in your eye and go directly to it. So I saw in my dream that the man began to run. Now he had not run far from his own door, but his wife and his children, perceiving it, began to cry after him to return. But the man put his fingers in his ears and ran on crying, life, life, eternal life. And his neighbors did too come out and yell for him to return, but he ran on, life, life, eternal life. John Bunyan penned those words intending to provoke believers to set their eyes on the celestial city and to flee from the city of destruction. The book of Revelation was written to operate in exactly the same way. It is a revelation of Jesus Christ and who he is, enlightening us to this king of glory and the fact that he is returning soon to judge the world and that we should hear and heed the word to flee from Babylon, from this world of rebellion against God, and flee unto Jesus, who will take us to that place that he is preparing even now. Revelation began in chapter 1, where Je Jesus appears to John, and we see him in all his splendor in gleaming white gown, and then... Jesus tells John to speak to seven churches and to deliver to them very practical messages about how they are to respond in light of the fact that he is coming soon. Then in chapter 4 and 5, we get a heavenly vision where Jesus opens a scroll that details God's plan to destroy the sinful world and to deliver his beloved people. And what we find afterwards is are six repeating cycles filled with symbols drawn from the Old Testament that weave together all of these pictures and prophecies that God has given throughout history showing how 
from the moment of the resurrection until the return of Christ, God is doing something to prepare the world for the day of judgment that he is warning unbelievers of their wickedness, that they need to turn from it, and that he is wooing God's people to keep persevering until they see him, that he is working both in the lives of unbelievers and believers at the same time through all sorts of things that are happening in time in history. The first cycle is chapter six through seven where we see seven, the seven seals and these four horsemen who come with judgments. Then the second is in chapters 8 through 11, we see seven trumpets, trumpets blown to warn that, that judgment is coming, and indeed these, these exodus-like plagues follow. And then we see a third cycle of the same portion of time in chapters 12 through 14, where we, we get a glimpse of what's the story behind the story, where we see the unholy trinity of the dragon and the two beasts of the sea and of the land as they oppose the holy trinity of heaven this cosmic war that's going on that, that John gives us insight into. Then we see the, the fourth cycle, chapters 15 and 16, seven bowls of wrath that are pour, poured out. And what we notice is that the seals and the trumpets and the bowls, though they're the same judgments over the same period of time, they intensify in their severity as, as if moving toward this, this great climax of, of Christ's return. And then when we la last, 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 la left off last time was in chapter 17 through 19 where we have the, the fall of Babylon. She is called the great prostitute. It's, it's not just Babylon the city, but rather the system, the world system filled with treasures and pleasures and oppression of God and his people and the opposition of God and his people. And we concluded in chapter 18 with watching Babylon fall, the city of destruction fell. And now in chapter 19, we come in verses one through 10, our text for this morning, and we see the response of heaven to both the justice of God against all evil that has fallen in Babylon and the praise for his mercy for all of those who he has delivered from the wrath to come. Follow with me, Revelation chapter 19, beginning in verse one. After this, the fall of Babylon, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage supper of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Revelation chapter 19 verses 1 through 10. If we're going to attempt to summarize what this section is all about, it might go something like this. Prepare for glory by praising God for his justice 
and his mercy. Prepare for glory by praising God for his justice and mercy. Prepare for that celestial city that is coming by praising God for his justice and his mercy. The emphasis this morning is, is directly at those who would call themselves Christians, who are believers, who are the ones who are going to be pictured in this scene celebrating the grace of God. I just want to say this morning, if, if you know yourself to not be a Christian, you are welcome here and we are thankful and we think it is providential for you to be here. That means that God set this up for you to be able to hear this message in light of what awaits all of us. May we all hear and heed. We're going to consider this in, in two sections. First, praise God for his justice, verses 1 through 5, and then praise God for his mercy, verses 6 through 10. Praise God for his justice, 1 through 5, and then his mercy in 6 through 10. Look again here at verse 1. Praise God for his justice. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, crying out, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God for his judgments are true and just for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. John hears a multitude in heaven lifting their voices in unison to praise the Lord. This great multitude is most certainly the redeemed from all of history. These are all believers from all time. Just like God promised, they are as many as the sand upon the sea and as the stars in the sky, innumerable, other than to God, who he knows each by name. They come from the world before the flood, from the days of Abraham, from the remnant in the days of the exodus and the kingdom and the exile. They come from the days when Christ was upon the earth and afterwards when the gospel spread to the ends of the earth. This is the same from chapter 7 verse 9, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. This is the great assembly of God's children. They are gathered before him because their hope has finally come. And they form this, this chorus of celebration. And it's a dual theme we'll see here of, of deliverance of God's people and destruction of God's enemies. They're going to be giving God praise for both of those things. For the reward of the righteous and the retribution of the rebellious. A word that you're going to notice here four times in this section is the word hallelujah. It shows up four times in the New Testament, and they are all right here. It shows up 19 times in the Old Testament, only in the book of Psalms. It's, it's a Hebrew phrase that means praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Now, why are they praising the Lord? Well, verse 1, because salvation and glory and power belong to our God. He alone has power. He alone deserves glory. He alone can bring salvation. Now, you may have heard that phrase before, salvation, that you need to be saved. What, is, what does that mean? Well, these saints know what it means because <laughs> they're seeing it unfold before their very eyes. The word salvation, it means to, to deliver or to rescue. You see, we... We've been promised that God will save his people from the evil world system of Babylon that oppresses and seeks to consume them. It has long oppressed God's people. It has mocked them and slandered them and oppressed them and imprisoned them and tortured them and murdered them because of their allegiance to Jesus. But now, here, their day of celebration is over and the celebration of the saints has begun because salvation has come. The Lord has rescued them from the world of rebellion. Now, just an interesting thing to note, when you read through the Bible, you're going to understand salvation kind of in three ways. The first is being saved in the past, being saved in the present, and then being saved in the future. When one sees Christ as beautiful and our sins as heinous and needing to be forgiven by a holy God, 
and, and, and we see that he died in our place and rose from the dead, that's when you are saved in the past. You're justified. That begins a process of being saved. We call it sanctification, where you are being set free from the corrupting power of sin in your life. So you have been saved if you are in Christ. You are being saved. And here we get a glimpse of the fact that one day we will be saved fully and finally when he returns and does away with all evil. This is what they're singing about. He saved us, he kept saving us, and now he goes, save us forever. That is the heart of their song. And what's interesting here is that his, his salvation in this section is uniquely seen in his judgment. Notice there, verse 2. The reason for this singing is for his judgments are true and just. The, the, the court of King Jesus is described here as true. It means that it's What's done there is done in accordance with the facts. God has receipts on everything. There's no lies or tainted evidence that's admissible in his holy court. His judgments are genuine. They're also just, which means they're, they're righteous. They, they, they conform to the standard of God's very character. So in this court, you've got to know that God doesn't have books of law that he looks to as some standard for his rulings. Rather, he is the standard. And his law is simply a reflection of his very character and his nature. So all of the rebellion that's happened in time and history is not just against some rule book in the sky, but it's against the holy creator of the universe. And that's seen here clearly on this day. And the, the judgment God is being praised for, specifically verse 2, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality. This great prostitute again is Babylon from back in chapter 18. Remember there, she's called the, the prostitute because she is portrayed as this unfaithful woman who lures the children of God into idolatry and immorality. Her temptations to sin have corrupted the earth, it says. She is known for her crooked perversions and then her cruel persecutions. She lures them away from devotion to the Lord and then oppresses them when they are in her grasp, much like a spider, which is an image we used earlier in our, one of the sermons. But here what we gotta see is that her evil will not last forever. Evil does not last forever, y'all. The Lord has an expiration date on it. And here, these saints are praising God because that date has come. Now this idea of judging Babylon, we should ask a question that we've learned to ask throughout this, this series. And that question is, where is that in the Old Testament? Some 600 allusions to the Old Testament all the way through the book of Revelation. We've already seen it with that praise Yahweh, hallelujah. And here, this judgment of Babylon is an allusion back to Jeremiah chapter 51 that speaks of the judgment of Babylon and how he will burn her with fire for her wickedness. One of the things we've got to understand here is that God's judgment of Babylon, this wicked world system, is not unjust. It would actually be unjust of God did he not judge her. Because he is good and because he is holy, he will deal with all evil. God would not be good if he did not bring judgment. He would be a wicked, passive God. But this God, because he's good, he will bring judgment. Now that being said, we need to know that Isaiah calls judgment God's strange work which means that it's not what he likes to do. Though he will do it because he's good, he would much rather extend mercy, which is one of the reasons that this book was written, so that you could hear it and escape this day of judgment. On this day, saints will rejoice because God is gonna make everything right. 
Again, verse 2, he has avenged her blood on he has avenged on her the blood of his servants. One of the chief things that Babylon, the world system, is known for is her persecution of followers of Jesus. Jesus said, if they persecute me, you can bet they're going to persecute you. And this has been true, right? The blood of God's people has stained the pages of history. From the blood of righteous Abel, who was killed by Cain, to Jesus, who was crucified by sinners, and many of his followers, including Stephen, who was stoned, or James, who was beheaded, nameless other men and women who were taken into the Colosseum under Nero and eaten by dogs there for sport, who throughout the centuries, even up to this very day in North Korea and uh, India and Afghanistan and uh, Somalia and Iran and many countries where right now, right now believers are being imprisoned and tortured and murdered. Right now their blood is being shed and their faith is being mocked. But just as in the days of Abel, their blood cries out from the ground. And what it cries for is justice, justice, justice. But the Lord will avenge it. Verse 2, this avenging of the blood is an allusion to 2 Kings chapter 9, where God says that he will avenge the blood of his prophets whom Jezebel murdered. It's very interesting that Jezebel is used in the book of Revelation as a picture of Babylon. She's a temptress toward idolatry and then a persecutor of the people. Psalm 79, Asaph cries for God to avenge the blood of his servants. And we also heard it earlier in the book of Revelation. You remember chapter 6 when we opened the, the fifth seal and saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And in that text there, Revelation 6, it said they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. In that Seen, the Lord told believers to wait, those believers who had suffered injustice and had their blood shed, wait just a little while longer. More of your brothers and sisters are destined to die, but when that number is complete, then I will make all things right. Revelation 19 is, is the answer to that prayer of Revelation chapter 6. The Lord will avenge their blood. And this is not some kind of crazy Liam Nielsen, Joker, Killmonger sort of vengeance. It's out of control. This is holy justice. Brought against evil in a way that is right and is good and is true and is deserved. Just to put a name with this sort of of scene. Earlier this year, Pastor Lawan Andimi from northern Nigeria was kidnapped by Boko Haram. They forced him to make a ransom video, and during that, rather than just ask for a ransom, he used it as an opportunity to testify to God's goodness and the fact that he was certain, he had a certain hope that he would one day soon see his wife and his children and celebrate with his church the name of Jesus who is worthy to be praised. A few weeks later, he was beheaded. His blood spilt upon the ground and his faith mocked. So the question is, in that scene, who's the fool? Is it the pastor who says, I have hope that I'm going to see my family and worship with my church again? Or is it the captors who were in power and used a machete to take off his head? See, down here, if you're on the right side of history, it looks like the captors win. But what you need to know is that this book is written so you see the end of the story. 
Because there's a day coming when that pastor and every other one like him, every brother and sister whose blood was slain at the hands of mocking uh, oppressors, they will be raised from the dead and they will stand with the Lord of glory and he will have a sword of vengeance in his hand and he will put down the oppressors. And on that day, on that day, truth will be seen and we'll see who the fool is. And the Lord wants his people to have confidence in that, to know that the resurrection of the dead is coming. And it also serves as a warning to those who would oppose God and his people that vengeance is in his hand and that you must be very careful with the way you relate to him and to his people. He will be avenged. Verse three, once more they cried out hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Another allusion to the Old Testament here, Isaiah 34, where the destruction of Edom here foreshadows the destruction of an evil world system. Now, I want, I want to pause and just make one comment, and that's this. that it, it may seem strange for some of us to imagine a crowd of the redeemed, which includes you, by the way. You're in that picture there in Revelation 19, if you're in Christ. It may be difficult for you to, to picture standing in glory, praising God for bringing judgment like this, so severe. What I would say to that is that I, I understand that feeling, but that one of the reasons God gives his word is to assure us that God's justice is good. And that one day when we see him in his holiness, we will feel about hell and about judgment the way that he feels about it. Which to be very clear again, Ezekiel 18, he does not delight in the death of the wicked. He says, no, that you would turn and live, says the Lord. He doesn't want people to incur this, which is why he gave his son, Jesus, to die in our place and to rise from the dead. But that same Jesus will be honored and his blood will be avenged, as will the blood of all those who by faith walked with him. And when we see him in all of his holiness and glory and splendor, we will understand why this sort of justice is good and right and true. And we will praise him for it. Verse 4, and the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. These angelic beings were last seen in chapter 4 and 5. Here they join the song of the redeemed. But they are interrupted by this voice from the throne. We've seen this voice, or we've heard this voice here speak twice in chapter 6 and chapter 16. Both times it's Jesus. So it's likely the same here where Jesus stands as the great representative of the saints, calling on all who fear the Lord, small and great, to praise him. Which is a very important observation. Do you notice that in heaven, the small and the great praise the Lord? So no matter who you were on earth, no matter your flight status, no matter well, how many letters you had behind your name, how many degrees you earned, how many trophies you have, all tremble before the Lord in heaven. God is the great equalizer. There, the small and the great, the famous and the forgotten, the intellectual and the illiterate, the wealthy and the poor, the healthy and the sick, the young and the old, the men and the women, Republicans and Democrats, socialists and libertarians, in heaven, everybody before him trembles and praises him. And who are these servants of the Lord? <laughs> well, they used to be servants of Babylon. They used to be against the Lord. They used to be with the world. They used to be in the world and of the world. These who are praising God for his justice and in a moment for his mercy are ones who know themselves to be no better than all the people who get judgment. They understand themselves to be rescued from that because of grace. 
These are the ones who have heard Revelation 18:4, the call to come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. I just want to say, as much judgment as there is in the book of Revelation, there is just as much, if not more, mercy. God called, he gives this so we'll see the severity, so that we will turn to him and live. I think it's one of the things to note about Babylon here is that our text, especially the last time in chapter 18, has been speaking of Babylon often corporately about the system that needs to be destroyed. But one of the things that's important that's also found in the book of Revelation and clear throughout the Bible is that systems are made up of individuals. So this judgment is falling upon individual people who are unwilling to turn from their part in the world system. They've got to forsake the world and what's in and what's pleasurable in the moment for Jesus and his joy, which is a very different kind of joy. The Lord wants us to know if you, you want to avoid this fate, you must leave Babylon, which brothers and sisters, friends, visitors, your associations are very important. Who you listen to, who you watch, who you take counsel from, who you run with, your associations matter because they influence you and they expose you. Part of the point of Revelation is to show that the, the most important association you can have now is with Jesus, that you would cling to him no matter what it costs you in the eyes of the world or in your personal comforts. Now one word of application aside from that before we move into this praise God for mercy, and it's this. Be sober about seeking justice now. Be sober-minded about seeking justice now. We live in a day when many are calling for justice in such a way that it appears many have become drunk on the desire for justice. They'll do anything to get justice. Now, on the one hand, I want to be very clear that it is good and important for God's people to seek justice. It's commanded by God. God has established governments and courts and police authorities to uphold justice. It's, it's clear God has given that. So, if, you, yeah, if you're one of God's children, I exhort you, elect officials who uphold justice. If you have a place of influence, use it for justice. Do good there and teach people how to do that. In the church, make sure that you always deal with one another justly to both fellow believers and to your neighbors. At the same time, we must not place our hope on getting justice here and now. God gives no promises in his word that you will get justice in this life. There's just none of them. But God does promise that true justice will come in due time. So that's why we must hear and heed this word when we think about wanting to bring justice. Hear this, Romans 12, 19 Beloved, never. And in the Greek, the word never means never. Absolutely never. Beloved, never. Avenge yourselves. Same word as avenge of what God's going to do on the last day. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. The Lord would say to us, get your hands off of justice because you don't even know what justice is. Now, again, that doesn't mean we don't work for justice in the ways that we're able to. But ultimate justice will not come in this life and Christians must never personally avenge for injustices. 
And the reason God says it's mine is because he knows what we don't know. He sees what we don't see. He understands what we don't understand. He has all of the tape, including what's going on in the hearts. He knows everything. And we can trust him. So what do I do then? Well, 1 Peter 2 says, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Same word of just that was used in Revelation. Jesus, what he did was he endured suffering. You want to talk about injustice. The most unjust thing that's ever happened is that creatures tortured to death their creator. That's injustice. And again, that does not minimize how much, how evil injustice is in this world. There are many injustices that are great and grave and heartbreaking. But for the believer, we are liberated from feeling the need to fix a world that Jesus promises he will return and make right. Lord, give us wisdom in how to operate in both worlds. What you got to know is that one day we will praise him for his justice. We're also going to praise him for his mercy. Beginning in verse 6. What happens here in 6 through 10 is the tone of praise is now going to shift from celebrating God's justice to celebrating his mercy. Verse 6, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Heaven rumbles with praise that feels like standing next to Niagara Falls these many waters, or being surrounded by a, a thunderclouds. Or if you've ever been into a, in a dome or a coliseum where it's so loud that you have to, you have to cover your ears or your, your eardrums are going to bust, it's like that except bigger. And why are they all praising? Well, because the king of glory is about to do something unique and unprecedented. He is about to take for himself a bride. Verse 7, let us rejoice and exult and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. Here we find the weddings uh, the wedding of all weddings. This makes the royal wedding look like a tea party in a dollhouse. This is the wedding of all weddings. All other marriages, all other weddings, all celebrations like that have anticipated this day. The Bible actually tells us in Ephesians 5 that marriage was intentionally designed to reflect this day. This day when we see Jesus and his bride together forever. The marriage of the lamb has come. This imagery of the Lord's relationship with his people being like a bride and a bridegroom fills the Old Testament, particularly the prophets. We see it in the Psalms, but particularly in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Hosea. And the, the, the striking picture in the Old Testament is how unfaithful the bride is, how unworthy she is, yet how the Lord loves her still. In one sense, she's just as much of a prostitute as, the Babel, as Babylon is, but God in his mercy takes her as his own and remakes her to be his own. The lamb here is the bridegroom. Now, at first glance, that's strange, strange language, isn't it? I mean, marriage supper of a lamb? I mean, marriage supper of a king. Marriage supper of the lion, right? 
Well, Jesus is described in those ways as well. But what the bridegroom is best known for on this day is his lamb-like love. You see, he will deal tenderly with his bride despite her sins. He was actually slain as a substitute for her. He shed his blood so her sins could be forgiven and become his own on that day. He was crucified to cure her self-inflicted wounds of rebellion. He came gentle and lowly so she could receive grace and glory. And this bride is none other than the church of God. Believers from all time, offspring promised to Adam and Eve, to Abraham and Sarah, Jews and Gentiles together in one body. This bride is a beautiful blend of people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. And she is beautiful to Jesus despite her sin. And we see here that his bride has made herself ready. How? Well, it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. It's important to notice here that both she is given garments then and she prepares her garments now. She's given garments then. She was, it was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. Which when we see that kind of imagery, we should ask, where is that in the Old Testament? Well, Isaiah 61 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. The goodness of this bride is a gift from God. He must give her this garment or she will have no hope, which reminds us of the, the parable of the wedding feast from, feast from Matthew 22, right, where you have a man who attempts to enter the wedding hall without the proper attire and he is cast out into judgment. Well, if you want to get into this party, there's a garment that is given to you and it begins with receiving the righteousness of Jesus which happens at conversion, which happens when you turn from your sin and you trust upon Christ. His sins are imputed. Our sins are imputed to him. His righteousness is imputed to us. We are robed in his righteousness. It is given by grace alone, received through faith alone in Christ alone. But that garment is not the only garment that we will wear on that day if we are God's people. In this text, we see that there are also robes given as rewards for practical righteousness. And just as a, a bride desires to look her best on that day when giving herself to her husband, so we will, on that day, desire to not show up undressed. That's why we have this text to highlight the importance of preparing even now. So she is given garments then, she prepares her garments now. The fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. On that day, we will wear our good deeds. Let me say that again, because this is super important for the rest of your life. What, what we're wearing on that day are the good day, deeds we do in this day. We are to be preparing as a bride ready to see the Lord and the way we do that is by grace through faith obeying him. Listen to this from Psalm 45, similar picture which is drawn upon again here. I'm, I'm certain bride, uh, this bride approaches a king dressed for his pleasure. It says in Psalm 45, 14, in many colored robes she is led to the king with her companions following behind her. With joy and gladness, they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. You have this bride who's made herself ready and she's coming in for this day when she and her bridegroom will be united. Brothers and sisters, everything we do now is in preparation for that day. Every good deed done for Jesus, every word spoken, every Stupid tweet, not tweeted. 
Every word of vengeance withheld, every word of gossip or slander not given, every word of encouragement for God's glory given, every sin resisted, every act of service and sacrifice for his pleasure is seen by God, known by God, recorded by God, remembered by God, and will be honored by God on that last day. And do you see here how, how amazing this is? It, it's portrayed as beauty, right? O obedience is true beauty. Now, it doesn't look like that in this world, which is really interesting because back in um, Revelation 18, you see Babylon, she was, 18, 16, clothed in fine linen, purple, scarlet. She has on robes of rebellion, which in this age look wise and beautiful and attractive. But on that last day, they'll be shown as shameful, where acts of obedience to God in this day and age oftentimes look foolish and silly. But on that day, you're going to wish you were wearing them because they'll be seen in light of the holiness of God. It's really interesting. These garments are similar to the Jesus' glorious garments from back in chapter 1. So our dress now in holy obedience shows our identification with him. So we are, every single day, through everything we do, either showing off that our allegiance is with Babylon or with Jesus. Remember the mark of the beast or the mark of the Lord? It's that. It's devotion. It is, it is our allegiance to which is seen. It's not just your iPhone, which I don't know if it's your iPhone. I don't think so. But anyway, the, the, the point of the mark of the beast has always been, who are you with? Are you with Babylon or are you with the Lord? It becomes clear in our lives, and it will be very clear on that day. That day ought to impact everything we do today. This is what was behind the Apostle Paul's sober warning in 2 Corinthians 11. Hear this. I feel a divine jealousy for you. This is a pastor speaking to a church. For, or since I betrothed to you one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that the serpent who deceived Eve by his cunning will deceive your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Paul's looking at this church in Corinth and he's like, you belong to Jesus. And I'm worried because all these temptations are coming and you kind of got an eye for whatever you like and what makes you feel good rather than thinking about the fact that I belong to him. This, by the way, is what makes a believer's sin so heinous. This is why sin is spoken of as spiritual adultery against, against God. We should see our sin not just as something that makes us feel bad or kind of messes up our lives, but it's, it's unfaithfulness to Jesus who shed his blood and who is waiting for us and preparing a place for us. Right now, he is making the house that we will dwell with him for all of eternity. And what are we stepping out on him down here is the imagery that's often used, which also makes Jesus' grace so glorious that he continues to love us and continues to pursue us. And then we feel guilty and be like, well, I should just quit then. He's like, whoa, whoa. No, girl, I love you. <laughs> Uh, he loves his bride and he pursues her and seeks her and holds her fast. God is merciful to invite his people to this celebration. The angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is the invitation of all invitations. This is the fourth of seven times that blessings are pronounced upon believers in Revelation. At this wedding feast, Jesus will dine with his bride in celebration of their love, their freedom from sin, from Satan, from death. It's the same picture that uh, Josh read earlier from Isaiah 25, that mountain where death will be swallowed up forever and he will wipe away tears from our eyes and we will be with him and we will say, this is our God, we have waited for him and he will take us into himself. Listen, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, please hear this invitation. Come unto Christ. 
Flee whatever the world is offering you and come unto him. This is what your heart longs for. What you're looking for and all of the trinkets and pleasures and things of this world is there. It's, it's, it's like we're blind in our sin trying to find life and Jesus is crying out, here it is. And he wants us to turn life, life, eternal life and flee unto him and leave behind all that perishes. He said, these are the true words of God. In verse 10, just a comment here, he fell down at the feet, uh, at his feet, at the angel's feet to worship him. But, but he said to me, you must not do that. I am your fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. John becomes so overwhelmed with this revelation that he's receiving with this angel that he bows down to worship the angel. And the angel's like, what you doing? Stop that. Get up. We're worshiping God. No. No. Which is two, two things just to note here. Angels know that God alone is worthy of worship. And the second thing, these are some of those little things that for me confirm the Bible's authenticity. Like if I'm John, I don't include that verse. <laughs> you know, I'm like, yeah, let's just leave out that part about me getting called out by the angel because I try to worship him instead of Jesus. I missed it. Yeah, I missed it. I would totally leave that out. But the Lord leaves it in just to show even the apostles who are in heaven are prone to be confused. That should be encouraging to us. Then he says, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. I think the point of that is that spirit-inspired prophecy, like what this whole book is about, is about Jesus. Everything that the, the spirit of prophecy proclaims is Jesus is Lord. Look to him. He alone is worthy of worship. What he's doing through this whole book is he's laying before us the beauty of Jesus and showing how precious he is because of how gracious he has been to us. So in light of that, we should prepare for glory by praising God now for both his justice and his mercy. So three final exhortations, very brief. First, always see evil through the lens of the end. Always see evil through the lens of the end. When you see it now, remember what God will do then. Always see evil through the lens of the end. Secondly, always entrust vengeance to the Lord. Always entrust vengeance to the Lord. The Lord will make all things right. Pursue justice, do good here, yes, but, but understand that ultimate justice can only be rendered by the holy judge of heaven. And then thirdly and finally, always be getting dressed for glory. Always be getting dressed for glory. Every word, every action, everything you do matters. Everything. Do it with an eye to that day picturing I'm preparing to see the Lord. He sees me now. One day I'll see him in light of this action that was done for his glory and I'll see how it pleased him and it will bring me great joy. May the Lord give us grace as we await that day. Let me pray for us.